Welcome to the Emerging Women Podcast, where we hear from brilliant women leaders creating big change in the world. I am Chantal Pirat, your host, and today's guests are El Luna, artist and author of The Crossroads of Should and Must, and psychotherapist Susie Herrick. El recalls hearing David White say, There comes a time when you no longer want to be a part of the conversation that diminishes you. This is powerful. There comes a time when you no longer want to be a part of the conversation that diminishes you. To help women who are coming to the same realization, Elle and Susie have just put out a beautiful book, Your Story is Your Power, Free Your Feminine Voice. Today, we'll discuss insights and exercises from the book, including how we can identify the parts of our stories that are keeping us from our own best interests as women. How personality typing, attention Enneagram lovers, can give us signposts as we uncover our true voice. And finally, how the special impactful magic that radiates around a woman working her edge can lead to a better future for all of us. Ready to tap into the feminine and ignite transformation internally and externally? It's all part of the Emerging Women ethos, so let's dive in and go deep. Welcome to Your Story is Your Power with El Luna and Susie Herrick. Hello and welcome, El Luna and Susie Herrick. How are you, ladies? Really We're good. great. Thank you for having us. I'm excited to do a podcast with two people. I think it will be very dynamic, especially since we're talking about personal story and the power of that and this new fabulous book, Your Story is Your Power, Free Your Feminine Voice. And maybe before we get into your personal stories, I'd love to hear from both of you. What does that mean, free your feminine voice? Hmm. Well, when I think about freeing my feminine voice, for me, it's really about um, getting, getting to the center of my story or the story that I tell myself about myself specifically as a woman. And um, really looking at what different factors internally impact my feminine voice, what impacts my own um, feminine power, which for me is, I guess we'll get into more about what we mean about feminine power, but how to, how to access that. And I mean, the, for me, the work really began as an invitation to integrate my own feminine voice and to understand my relationship to it. So freeing the feminine voice is figuring out uh, what's keeping that voice at bay and, and how to look at the origins of that and step into that as a, as a process, as a journey. Nice. And that was L. just so we can start identifying you all when you're speaking. What about for you, Susie? What do you well, I, I, that, is, that was perfect. Um, I, I was thinking about it in terms of how I identified it, and it was through a series of events that made me realize how much I was criticizing that part of me. Mm -hmm. So the way that I found it was through understanding the critic or the internal critic in me or the internal, what I term internal misogynist. 
that part of me that didn't like parts of me. And that's how I started to find out what that voice was. Right. So tell me about how you came together. Now, Elle, I'm familiar, obviously, you spoke at Emerging Women Live. We did a podcast on your previous book, The Crossroads of Should and Must, and which illustrated your story of how you came to leave tech and follow your inner guide towards a life of creativity and really thought leadership. And so I'm curious to see, like, how did you meet Susie? And also, Susie, you have a book called Aphrodite Emerges. And we would love to hear about a little bit about that work and how you are both sort of coming together in your next generation of, of thought leadership around feminine power. And you're coming together. This is a partnership. And obviously, you've co-authored this powerful book. Where are you coming from and how did you get here together? Well, this is Al. I'll, I'll dive in. I, um, I met Susie through a mutual friend. And I think, you know, from the minute we met, it was a, a kindred spirit situation. And at the end of um, The Crossroads of Should and Must, I felt like that book had really, really explored um, in my own journey what what must was starting to look like and feel like in my own um, create creative world and returning to my more of a, a life of creativity. And while the book talked about should, I didn't really go into it specifically. I didn't um, share a lot of personal shoulds with the reader. And um, around the same time, Susie was completing her memoir, Aphrodite, Aphrodite Emerges, and we got to collaborate on that. And um, Susie, I'll let you tell a little bit more about um, your book. Uh, but there was this real sense that there was a, um, a very rich collaboration opportunity to take um, sort of the spirit of the crossroads of should and must, something that was colorful and highly visual and, um, and succinct, um, and to marry that with a lot of the incredible expertise that Susie has developed over a many decade career as a psychologist and also author. And um, so if you took Aphrodite Emerges and the Crossroads of Should and Must and put them together into a book, you get this third thing, which is um, your story is your power. And, and for me personally, this book really gave me space to explore more of my shoulds. And like what Susie just mentioned, really looking at the voices inside of me that were standing in the way of must, that were standing in the way of, um, of, of really what I longed for and what I was craving and wanting in my life. So this book has been incredible to, to really um, get to know those inner voices. And, and with Susie's um, therapeutic expertise, there's, activities and exercises and questions no no prescriptions or um formulas but we we share our story and what worked for us and then pose a lot of questions for other people um so that's that's how i got here susie how about you <laughs> um 
you know, I feel like in my mind, it's sort of like one big, huge flower. And where do you go to find the center um, of where it starts or where it begins? But it all kind of interrelates in my life to be talking about this. And I'm so privileged to, to um, have this conversation because I think I would love it that women all over the world would have this conversation, have this dialogue about how they've discovered power or uh, self-efficacy. Um, and for me, the, 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 the inspiration of Aphrodite emerges was a very personal one with my father. Um, and the beauty of that is that we went from being somewhat estranged, even though we were in the, you know, saw each other all the time and I grew up in the home, um, to having a very, very close relationship. And my, my father's, um, lineage was kind of geared towards, um, you know, being very good people, but there was this strain of misogyny that would show up the way that women were treated. And so I um, found that I had internalized that. And when I discovered that and how I would speak to myself, I was able to finally talk to myself in a way that shifted it. And then I had a conversation with my father that changed his life um, and how he treated himself, how he treated women, how he treated my mother. And uh, so by the, he died um, a year and a half ago. And by the time that he died, we'd had, such a rich and full uh, relationship um, that it was like, I got my father back. So this is why the work is so important to me Mm -hmm. is that it brings people together. It brings in intimacy. It brings in relationship. And if we are my experience, if I separate a part of myself out, then I don't have that connection to myself and it's much harder to connect to that and other people. Right. Right. And this book, I mean, just, it's sort of like a blueprint for how we can overcome maybe some issues we have with our story, make peace with our story, and really come to love our story. (laughs) Well, I mean, and also just accept it. I mean, at at the bare minimum. And all of the exercises are wonderfully laid out. So, so let's, let's dig into it. And I'm curious in your work with women from all different areas, and I know, Elle, you, you do a lot of speaking in the Northern California, Silicon Valley area, so you're familiar with the corporate side of things, and Susie as a coach and a therapist, and sounds like you are have a, a slightly different angle. But what are the trends that you see? Like, what's the need for this book? Why do you think we need this book? I mean, aren't, don't people know their stories? They know where they're from. They know what their upbringing was. Why, why frame it in this way? Why did you think that women actually needed this blueprint? Uh, this is Susie, and I'll dive in, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm this whole um, now political environment and the Me Too um, movement and um, has really shown how women's voices have been stifled um, uh, and in very, very um, sad ways. And even women that have a lot of power and women that have a lot of um, gravitas and charisma have had to keep silent. Um, and what, what I think this type of journey unveils is a way to look at what's going on inside oneself that keeps one or keeps me from speaking 
or from talking or from doing what I want to do or being who I am. And so uh, the thing that, that I think is really important about this is that women's, you know, uh, voices, tendencies, all that sort of stuff has been really silenced in a lot of ways. And how do we bring it out? And that's why I think it's so important. And just to echo what Susie said, um, one of the sentences in the book, which I've, I've, I've just received my first copy, Susie and I both got our first copies. And um, the, the one sentence that I highlighted first was the immense challenges that we face globally are due to the loss of the feminine. Yeah. That sentence is so, so important. And yeah. we're seeing it at a, at a global level. We're, we're also um, collectively as a community of women seeing how it's um, popping up around the dinner table or how it's popping up, um, you know, maybe out at an event. We're beginning to have dialogue. It's starting to happen with the Me Too movement, like Susie said. And, you know, when I'm at an event and I see blatant misogyny, um, what's, what's happening there for me? How do I interact in that situation, in that moment? And the invitation with this work is the more, um, the more clear things become internally, the more clear it becomes on what action to take externally. Mm-hmm. And so that's how, that, that's how the, the internal and the external worlds begin to bridge and connect. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when we think about our personal stories and the feminine, because at first glance, it's like, okay, what is my personal story? We're not like making a list of all the ways we've thrown our feminine under the bus. We're making a list of our accomplishments and our challenges and how we overcame them, the hero's journey and you know what I mean? All of those things, which can be, you know, we're in therapy, we're, we're unveiling a lot of like issues, but it took me into my forties before I started seeing a commonality of like a lot of my issues where the fact were because of the fact, not just, they weren't just all in the psychological realm. They were in this energetic realm of stifling my, my feminine energy. Mm. and actually just kind of abusing it because it wasn't going to get me anywhere. That is so eloquent. Thank you. That's, that's the thing about um, that I have found, this is Susie, by the way, (laughs) that, that one of the things that um, when I was young, I would always reach out for relationship and trying to connect and um, yet feeling ashamed about that. So after a while, even when it came you know, to, you know, becoming an adolescent and wanting relationships with um, heterosexuals to the opposite sex is that I felt ashamed of that too. So what came out in me was a sense of shame about relationship. And what, you know, the research now is showing is that women are relationally intelligent, that our minds evolve via relationship. And so the tendency towards tending to relationship and wanting good relationship is actually important for our own evolution. And we don't thrive without it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the things that we uncover in, you know, by going through this book are, you know, when you say your story is your power, it's more nuanced than the, the tasks that we achieved and the degrees that we got. And the, I mean, you're really talking about like the story under the story under the story. 
yes. here. Chantal, I'm, I'm reminded of this. Um, it's not from a poem. It's, it's something that I heard David White say, the poet David White, when he mm-hmm. was here in San Francisco. And he said, there comes a time when you no longer want to be a part of the conversation that diminishes you. Yeah. And when he said that, I just, you know, oh, wow. Internally, there comes a time when you no longer want to be a part of the conversation that diminishes you. And the, um, it's, it's one of the stories that we talk about in the book is, um, as Susie was saying, how important relationships and community are um, is the uh, story about the Grameen Bank. So the, the Grameen Bank was started by Mohammed Yunus, and he, um, they've, they've since won a Nobel Peace Prize for the work. Mm-hmm. But in, um, they were doing microloans, and they originally were giving microloans to the men. And what they found was that the, the men were primarily spending the, the microloans on gambling and alcohol. So they began giving the microloans to the women, specifically within third world countries, and 97% of these loans that were given to women were spent on things like improving the nourishment of the kids, uh, the food in the community, or improving their small businesses, or making sure that everyone had clothes and socks, and not just for their own kids, but for other kids within the community. And it's this amazing thing year over year. Now the Grameen Bank focuses on giving microloans to women because their repayment record is close to 97%. Mm-hmm. And it's this incredible insight that um, there's, there's something that it, it doesn't need to um, go out and be found. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to be um, learned. It's, 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 there's a quality of altruism. There's a quality of, of um, wanting to be in relationship and wanting to be in community that's, um, that's already there. And, and specifically looking at the Grameen Bank, it's incredible what happens when we invest in the feminine, invest in women, um, and, and what can happen, especially as that starts to ripple out. So, you know, I love this, this focus on, and we're just on the edges of it, on activism, right? I mean, the climate right now is just, you know, fabulous because it's, it's lighting a fire under all of us who want this paradigm where we're putting life, all of life at the center of what we do. And, and yet we've been, you know, kind of complacent and, you know, nothing much would stir us until now. We, we need the current administration is, is uh, quite a motivating force. And so when you say that, you know, we investing in women, but you're making the case that first finding our own story will lead to a more powerful outward action on our parts to get involved in making the world a better place, both for women and children first of course, because that begets more nurturing and more of a balanced. But is that what you're saying? Like, is that the call here? Yes. Um, 
Susie, I'm going to jump in, but I'd sure. love your thoughts on this too. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll tell a personal story. So one of the, um, one of the early insights for me is that I felt like being a feminist was something I didn't want to be. So oh. if I had, if I had a should, it would be, you shouldn't be a feminist. And I had in my mind a, a pretty um, debilitating image about what a feminist was. Mm-hmm. And uh, Susie and I would have these wonderful conversations and I could sense my own, um, you know, it's, 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 um, Susie talks it, about it kinesthetically when our personality structure gets sort of tapped or, um, or you're really you're, you're really on the edge of your own personality structure. You can feel it um, almost like a, a, Susie, I don't know the word, protoplasmic. Is that the word you use? <laughs> Anything you want, but something that, that moves. <laughs> something jelly. like something that moves. Yeah. Like jelly. And when ideas around feminism would come up, I could feel that in my chest, like this tightening and this sort of this vibrational quality. And we continue to dialogue. And one day Susie said, um, you know, if, uh, feminism is really about just equality between the sexes. That's what being a feminist is. And I realized that the story I was telling myself about what it meant to be a feminist was very different than a story about equality. I mean, that sounds great. I would really, that, that's, I would like to be a part of that. I would like to be a feminist with that definition. And so it invited, you know, what was the story I, I was telling? What was getting in the way for me actually, um, stepping into, you know, ideas about equality. And, you know, we'll talk about this more, but really going into the block or um, the voice that was standing in the way of that for me, uh, Susie and I use the same word. It's the internal misogynist. It's the part of ourselves that's keeping ourselves from our own best interests as a woman. And um, as I began to look at this um, unconscious um, voice that was operating inside of my, you know, my, my internal world, I began to realize that things like being a feminist were um, awesome. And of course, if I could never have gotten over that hurdle of how I felt about the very definition of being a feminist, I certainly wouldn't be co-authoring a book all about freeing your feminine voice and celebrating feminism. So, so that's a great example, Chantal, of how you're talking about first finding our own story because it, it might unlock different doors in the wall, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, before um, it, it, the internal, going internally first changes a little bit the, the path and, and how we might show up externally in our lives or in the world. No, Susie, I've, I've just said a lot of things that have involved <laughs> no, you, so I, I have to toss the baton to you. <laughs> it, it, that was great. That was, um, I would, I, I'm just, um, I'm struck about by how this has really come to the forefront. I was raised in a, in a community um, of um, people that really believed in activism and did a lot of activism. So I was exposed to the women's movement really early. And my mother would go off to women's conferences and, and, you know, they did in those days, they did, you know, marches in rainbow colored clothing. And, and, um, and I, so I got firsthand uh, as a child, what it was like to have a mother that really advocated for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, for me, it's not been at recent, it's been sort of an ongoing uh, cause, so to speak. And I think that, that, um, that I, this book really is 
not meant to say it's this is the right way or this is there are wrong ways or this this is what will change your life but this book is about how to add to the dialogue of how to help women come out and and really say their piece um and so that's that's really what this is for and um so you know we sort of when ellen and i were working on this um we we imagined the future to see you know what would be the ideal person that would pick this book up and uh at one point um we were sitting at the japanese tea garden and there was this little uh girl baby she was just adorable and she had bright pink diapers on and we asked her mother what her name was and her mother said her name was grace and there was something so moving about like this is the future this is what we're writing this book for is how to have an environment where it's great and fabulous to have feminist or feminine feminine characteristics that would be pl- applauded and loved and adored um in a world where you know girls can just stand up and say this is what i want i i want i don't want to i don't want i don't want to watch so much violence on tv i want more movies about this or mm-hmm. um you know really you know say what's important to them as opposed to what i think tara moore writes about which i think is fabulous which is the sense that you know uh that we get caught up in this attachment to praise and uh, an avoidance of criticism. And so it keeps us from being innovative. And I think that's, that's the thing that we are really trying to get at is how do we get beyond the criticism, the internal criticism and, um, and get to that place. that's truly innovative so that we can start really coming up with great ideas about how to shift, you know, what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. Because both Ellen are deeply, deeply concerned about the trajectory that we're on for the future in terms of the environment and the political scene and, you know, state, state of the world is really, uh, it's really scary. And so, and so anyway, that's. Yeah. That's I'm, <laughs> I think that freeing the voice is the way forward. And, you know, it's been fabulous to watch the Me Too and the critics and all the 360 around it. But what, what excites me about, now I'm coming back to this point of the microloans, and is that oftentimes some of this work, I'm a little bit like, to what end? You know, I believe that, God, just being aware and present in our own lives day to day can heal the planet. Mm-hmm. We, I feel like we have no more time left, that that's not enough. That we actually, if we can have in our brains that freeing our voice and developing this level of consciousness and really owning and accepting and using our story and our voice in a more proactive way, not just speaking up. Okay, yeah, we're going to speak up about our experience, but really understanding how speaking up will actually create the new paradigm is, I think, what you're presenting here. That's key because just speaking up in and of itself without that awareness mm-hmm. is, you know, it's a lot of Facebook posts, mm-hmm. right? Yes. But, but when you definitely energetically connect to that and you're aware of some of the, the policies and the research and the impact of an increased feminine paradigm and how that affects the world just logistically in terms of economic structures and government and, you know, I think that's we need to infuse 
our voice with that awareness and that we're not falling into the trap of, I'm just going to talk about my experience. Wow. That feels good. That's cathartic. Right. And anyway, so that's my two cents on the whole thing. I, I, this is Susie, by the way. And and I just want to chime in there because I think that it's um, one of the things that, that, um, I talk about, I can't remember which book now, <laughs> that systems theory, systems theory, you need an individual, you need um, a balance between two tendencies, individual and mutual, mm-hmm. for a system to be viable and flexible for change. Mm-hmm. And so uh, right now, um, women have kept so silent that the individual voice of the feminine has been lost. Mm-hmm. And so it's in, you know, you, you know, and I know in feminism, feminist theory, they talk about the sort of parallels with how women have been treated and how the planet has been treated. And um, there's a lot of controversy about that, but, but the, the, the heartfelt sort of push behind this is that, you know, how do we, take a look at our story. And sometimes it might be to share the story. You know, that's why I wrote a memoir was to share my story. And it was probably one of the most psychologically beneficial things that I ever did for myself Mm. um, because it really built a sense of internal coherence. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's that internal kind of mediation that went on inside me that allowed me to kind of come out much more than I used to. Mm -hmm. And, and this is the kind of thing that I really hope for the feminine voice in general is, you know, how do we stand up and say, this is the future that we want for all of us and for women. And we've had to be silent in a lot of countries. Women can't say anything, Mm -hmm. Um, but we've had to be silent, but now we're ready to really risk it. And, you know, there are heroines of the past. I mean, you look at Susan B. Anthony and people like that who really stood up and said, Hey, wait a minute. You know, I'm I'm supposed to live by these laws in this country, but yet I can't vote to have any impact on them. So these are the kind of things that that I think that women now can say culturally or behaviorally, this has to stop and this is what we need now to to move forward. And I've done this my work myself. I've done this inside of me. Yeah, I mean the flip that's a really good point because the flip side is a lot of action a lot of charity work, a lot of nonprofit work where we're burning ourselves out and we don't have time for our own internal work. And, and, you know, I'm, I don't know which scares me more, just excessive internal work with no connection to um, some kind of active activist movement forward on the outside or just all, you know, activist work uh, with no internal work. I mean, the two have to come together. Yes. They just have to come together to have the, the impact that we want to have. And Chandra, one thing I want to say about that is that we talk about personality in, in um, your stories, your power. And for some people, when they, like for me, I'm the kind of person that usually retreats uh, for fear of disappointing someone or for fear of making a mistake. And, um, and I've had to learn that when I step forward, that that has huge impact, right? Because I'm so used to going internal. Mm-hmm. For other people, it's the other direction. And so, so, and there's sort of a magic around people that are working their edge. And I don't know why, but it seems to have a huge impact when someone's really worked their edge, their presence of that. When they, when they walk into a room or they are giving a talk, you can feel that. And it has so much of an impact um, on who they're talking to. 
And I think that's, that's the kind of work we're looking for, which is how do you deal with your own demons, so to speak, or the, your own dragons? And when you do that, then it paves the way for other people to do the same and to really internally and externally do it. It's sort of like the external and the internal metaphors for each other on how to, to do this work. Mm-hmm. And I was just looking at this article a friend of mine sent me that happened at the middle of this month, which is that um, there were these women in the L.A. airport that saw a mother and a child um, and the child was having a meltdown. And um, so they all surrounded the child and started singing Itsy Bitsy Spider. And the child calmed down. And this is the kind of thing. It's like it's, it takes a village to bring this out. And it takes an, in, an internal village as well. Yeah. So you brought up your, you know, again, the, the sort of personality types. You, you're using the Enneagram, mm. which I find interesting. Um, it's a fabulous system. And I'm totally, like, immersed in it myself. Um, <laughs> for ways to give us like a a map for where our edges are and, and, you know, where, where our comfort zone is. And so I'm curious why a personality typing system, why an archetype system? Uh, Do you want me to answer that L or did you want to? I would love for you to answer that, Suze. (laughs) Um, Well, this is the thing about personality. There's a lot of personality theory and basically it's theory, right? So there's a lot of questions around personality and and how do you type people and why? Um, So for this particular book, we wanted to have, we wanted to address the different levels of impact that people have on their internal voice. You know, the the cultural impact is why we talk about fairy tales Um, and then the family impact. And, and in my family, you know, I found out that, you know, a bunch of generations ago, um, I had a lot of uh, ancestors that were key players in the Salem witch trials, which sort of explained a lot of why there was sort of this internal terror that went through the the family generational process. Um, And so, but the other thing that's fascinating about what dampens our voice is our personality. And um, so when doing this book, you know, I've been studying the Enneagram for, I don't know, 20 something years, almost 30 years now. And it's been the most effective tool I've had to be able to give language to what I was struggling with. Mm-hmm. And so when L, um, I shared this with L, and then we, we also, um, and Elle had been following it as well. And we, we um, uh, talked about it in a workshop that we did. And it, it was so popular um, that we decided that we would put it in the book. Um, and so we, but we wanted to do it in such a way that would, that would speak to, um, colorfully speak to everyone around why we were doing it. So we uh, correlated it with the myth center. I mean, the, the fairy tale Cinderella and talked about how Cinderella, um, you know, emulated all the positive aspects of personality and the, and the step, stepsisters and stepmother sort of emulated the negative aspects so that we could just talk about it. But the idea is, is that each personality type um, is, is either developed and there's a lot of controversy about whether, you know, personality is nature or nurture and it's, you know, all up in the air. But this idea that, and I'll mention this earlier was that there's this, this part of us that we develop that tells us you've got to do this in order to survive socially. You have to do this in order to make it the world. And so what I discovered in myself was I thought in order for me to survive, I had to be a person that didn't disappoint anyone. 
that I was a person that wasn't supposed to make any waves. I was supposed to be someone that people could come to and feel comfortable and, and nice. And what I discovered is that this was a great personality trait that helped me sort of to survive, but eventually it was also having the opposite effect. And so the Enneagram was a great way to describe that type that I was actually a, a, a peacemaker. Yeah. And, um, and so in learning that, I found that when I actually would counter this, and it would take a lot of work, I mean, a lot of work, because when you, when you come up, I find when you come up to that point where your body says, oh, you know, you can't do this, it feels like you're going to die, right? So, yeah. so when I took an action, basically, when I'd say, okay, I, I, I'm going to do something that's controversial, despite all these internal no's, but doing the right thing and take action on that then when i do that everything shifts i mean huge thing shifts like the thing with my father totally shifted i mean people you know kept asking us for our communications with each other because they could see the difference in our in our relationship mm-hmm. and so to me the enneagram just offers that roadmap and there are many different personality typologies and different descriptions and you know ways to look at personality but this particular one we found was helpful and fun and very profound Mm-hmm. Al, how has that, um, you know, what are your insights personally into the Enneagram? And you're somebody who has, you know, like I said, with your history and Crossroads of Musk, you outline that whole process of how you sort of came back to your center, to use the language in the book, through that process. And now, what is your f- feminine voice bringing you to that feels... I kind of like, you know, want to hear it in terms of that Enneagram path so that we can have an example. Sure. So for those of you listening there, there's a diagram in the book that you you can't see right now, but um, it's a circle and around the circle are nine different types. These are the nine different types of the Enneagram. And it's, it's almost like if there were nine seats at the table, there are nine different, um, types within this geometric figure. And so within the book, we outline how to find your own type. And um, again, using the fairy tale of Cinderella. And so Susie is a is an Enneagram type nine, which is the peacemaker. And I'm an Enneagram type seven, which is the enthusiast. So what does that mean about um, my journey and my process? So um, an Enneagram type seven, appropriately called the enthusiast. I I grew up feeling like um, like I'm the the kind of person who puts on a happy face, and I keep things enthusiastic, and I keep things very light and fun, because deep down I really am afraid that if I am negative or if I'm boring, people will stop loving me, or people will leave. And as I began studying the Enneagram, I saw how I was playing into those expectations. And I've had to learn, and I I love this language of working an edge. Sometimes when I'm even in a situation where I'm literally working this exact thing, I can even say to the person I'm talking to, like, this is, this is, um, I'm working an edge right now. I just want to name that. Sometimes I'll say it. Um, but I've had to learn how to step towards pain and towards suffering and towards things that I might think are negative or things that are boring 
And when you do that, or when I do that, um, even right now, as I talk, you know, talking about pain and suffering, I can feel it in my body. I know I'm a a seven too. And just the word boring, like drives me crazy. (laughs) It's like like the happy face with the line across. There's no like upward and there's no downward like that to me, just like, Oh, it's hard. Mm. Well, what's really helpful about the Enneagram for me is that it's, it's sort of like, um, I was able to get signposts for, um, or it's, or it's like I was able to scuba dive and figure out, um, you know, kind of get some clues about situations that were, um, that were triggering for me. And usually I would respond to them in a similarly patterned way. And, um, I guess the question is, were those patterns or reactions working for me? And the answer was no. And I, I was stuck and I wanted to figure out how to get unstuck. And the Enneagram began showing me ways that I could bring more awareness to these trigger moments and have an invitation to do something different, to choose something different. Um, and what I've found is that the more I step towards pain and towards suffering, my own suffering, it actually releases all of this um, energy inside of me because the, the inside of the pain or inside of the boredom or inside of the suffering are things that I actually really want. Um, so it seems a little paradoxical that you, you know, you have to move into this thing that you don't want to move into. But for me, that's where all of the, the, the jewels have been. And within, um, pain, I find that because I'm inherently optimistic, I can actually bring a lot of joy to some of the harder things about my life. Within suffering, I found that um, I'm able to get into my body and feel, which is something that for an enthusiast, enthusiasts are usually thinking types. And so I spend a lot of time naturally from like the neck up um, so going into suffering and dropping into the body is um, actually feels really good, even though it's 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 an edge and it can be hard. So, and I guess one other important thing to mention is that it's it's a lifelong process, and and it's um, a constant, you know, awareness and and returning to, um, you know, making sure you're aware. Like, am, am I playing into my personality type? Am I playing into that well grooved? you know, pattern on the floorboards, or is this an opportunity to, to choose something different, which I know is going to make me feel better? And maybe that's the ultimate answer to your question is, um, why, why the Enneagram? Why look at personality typology at all? And in my experience, it's, it's just really helped me feel better. Yeah. And, and this whole idea of discovering what is holding your voice back I think is important and that through the Enneagram, it's going to be different from, for all of us, right? So for you, you're holding back because you're not, you don't want to actually experience the fear. So that's going to stifle that, that voice, right? The power of our voice can't be unleashed if we're constantly, you know, putting stimulus in there. So we don't feel, we don't have space for silence and for Susie, you know, just being the, the good 
peacemaker and the, you know, even Stephen is a way of stifling our voice. So what you're saying here, which I like, is discovering our own archetype well, is, is, again, part of this roadmap to figuring out how to unlock the power of our voice and the different ways in which we stifle it. And um, this is Susie, and I wanted to quote something that's in the book, which um, it's, we quote um, uh, Thule Madonsela, I think is how you say her name. Um, I need to listen well so that I hear what is not said. And I yeah. think that's the, the journey, which is how to get to that place where, you know, like Elle was talking about, where she could actually hear the part of her that was in pain. And yeah. for me, I could hear that part of me that wanted to speak, that wanted to say my piece. Um, and so we talk about in order to take back your story, you first must know yourself. And beginning more, becoming more aware is a process akin to looking for a light switch in a dark room. It's mm. like this idea that we have to discover ourselves so we can actually hear the parts of us that we haven't heard before, but yet know are there. Yeah. I'm going to make also a plug for silence. And, you know, I just feel like as entrepreneurs... And women, I mean, look, if we don't have our own kids, we're taking care of our parents. It just is what it is. We Mm -hmm. have it in us and we're, we're nurturing the world and, you know, there's just not enough time. We're not taking this time out. We're not even taking the time out to figure out what our Enneagram type is. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, you've got these great, powerful practices in here that are that are short and laser and so I just encourage Mm -hmm. people when they get the book to do some of those and but I want to say one more thing about the Enneagram because I just can't I have to I just made this uh, realization you know I don't know if you've ever heard this approach where countries have Enneagram numbers right you can type (laughs) a country Uh right and so like this I I argue that the and I've heard this also from Eli Jackson Bear, uh-huh. uh, another Enneagram expert, but but that his point is that the U.S. is a three culture, right? So threes like the doer and the achiever, and they tend to be workaholics and very independent, right? I don't need freaking nobody, you know. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. They're, they you know alienate themselves to make sure that their value is clearly attributed to themselves and so super us right but mm-hmm. the, the the wonderful thing about that is that as this country integrates if we can do it we're going to more of that we culture which is the six the three if you believe in this version of the enneagram integrates to six and that's you know about groups and and being a team member rather than like being the person who does it all ourselves and as we become interdependent we are moving towards this feminine model and you know i just i feel like it's it's great this enneagram system is great in terms of not just i mean you brought up systems theory you started the geek the geek train susan but um but you know i mean that's how if we look at it just in terms of systems you can see a lot and I, I feel like, you know, if we, the Western woman, right? The Western woman, according to the Dalai Lama, is going to save the world. Okay. Well, the Western woman is in this three culture. And we need to really understand 
in this new realm of feminism and feminine thinking that it's not going to be done alone. It's not going to be done by ourselves. And uh, this is Susie. Can I yeah. respond? Um, the, there's something that, that you said that, that um, I wanted to point out about the Enneagram that I think is really interesting is that I found one of the most useful ways to finding my type um, is what I criticized. And what I criticized were people that would stand out, be selfish, <laughs> you know, say whatever they wanted to say and not think about other people. And, and I realized that I was actually looking at my, the type that I needed to learn more from. And so, uh, and with the three, the three culture that we're in, right, there's this saying that a lot of harm has come from valuing doing over being. Yeah. So, and so what I, what I'm getting is that what you're saying, and I think this is an interesting theory, which is that, you know, are we now transforming into another type or are we getting into the virtue of the three, which is the truth? Um, And that's a whole nother part of the Enneagram, which is that we're having to look at the truth of ourselves despite all our desires to look a certain way. Um, And so, and I think um, for this journey itself, um, I think the thing that's so fabulous about it is that once the types, once you get a sense of your type, then you get a sense of what is the piece about the type that's transformative. Mm. And that's, that's why this is not, you know, one, one solution for all of us. It's actually finding one's internal voice is actually finding your own innovative solution for yourself and what actually is that and that type of thing is what's transformative yeah and i think that all of our all of the sort of heroes before us you know like i I sort of imagine gandhi was probably a one right so he had to transform that critical part of him and learn how to love himself and get to that point of serenity and so it's this is why the journey I think is so fabulous because when one person truly transforms this part of them and gets into that part of them, that's really their truth. That's when it all the things shift. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have empathy for ourselves. We have empathy for others. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd like to make one more parallel if I could, which is that, um, that when we take a look at the survival sort of, paradigm of misogyny and sexism and we look at how we've let that personality trait hold us back as a culture we can actually face it even though it might feel like it might kill us in some way face it and actually transform it into the feminine power the feminine voice say more same okay, more. so I'm on the so edges the, of it. Yeah, the, the when we work these edges, like when I work the edge of I want to retreat and be a peacemaker, but I actually have to go forward and do something controversial, right? That's that's the challenge of working through the personality fixation and the enneagram for me. It's how do I work through that fixation of needing to make peace, right, and not saying what I really think, right? It's you can parallel that to facing up to that scary patriarchal um, world that says, you know, as a woman, you're not supposed to do these things. Uh Or as a culture, we're not supposed to have a feminine voice. Men, men insult each other by calling themselves girls, right? So it's a bad thing. But as a culture, as a, as a human community, if we stand up and say, you know what, it actually is a good thing. And we're going to stand up and be feminine in the face of all this terror coming back 
because that is what the truth is. And that I believe will transform the planet because then we can take a look at all the ways that we've allowed dominance to really, you know, uh, really affect us in a critical way. Uh Like our environment is a great example of it. Um, So that's, that's why I think this, this transformation from the personality fixation is a great metaphor because it's so scary to change those, those parts of us. Mm-hmm. But L talks about, I'm supposed to be optimistic and cheerful and never supposed to be boring or, or look like I'm in pain. But when she actually steps into that, how much we learn from it, because look at all the art that's come out of her. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And it's yeah. because she's done the work. And yeah. We get to experience it. Let's shift into that because you make a point in the book about beauty and you're ta- you also recommend dance. And mm-hmm. so what, what is the role of, you know, first of all, I'd like to hear what you mean by beauty and why that's part of the feminine story. Why should the feminine own beauty? Right. And then also like what, how in your own life, has this been a, a gateway in terms, I mean, gosh, there's so many people I know, men and women that could use more creative outlet. And yet I, you know, I, I just wonder if this is you, how this hooks specifically into the feminine and what is the trend with women and creativity, whether we're bringing it out more or we've been repressing it or what's the opportunity Well, one of the things we outlined with the fairy tales is how um, beauty in beauty in Beauty and the Beast and Cinderella and Snow White. There's a pretty clear formula in in those um, fairy tales about uh, we call it a recipe. You know, do these things and you'll get your happily ever after. Um, Beyond the fairy tale within culture, Susie and I outlined. you know, some of the impact that the cigarette industry had on women when they realized that women didn't really like to smoke, um, but they thought that was a huge untapped market. So uh, Freud's, Sigmund Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays, um, played into this using some of his uncle's techniques to figure out how to get women to smoke um, for the the cigarette industry. And he found that um, if you told women that it would help them stay skinny, they would actually smoke quite a bit. But actually, even more, if you told women that smoking a cigarette symbolized uh, feminism or freedom, uh, they, they actually rebranded cigarettes as torches of freedom, that women would not only smoke them, but smoke them publicly because it said something about who they were and what they valued. And it worked. Women began smoking in you know mass numbers. After that, the... Um, brilliant author, activist, Naomi um, Wolf, started looking at all of the impacts of um, these images and these messages on women, specifically through advertising. And in a research study, women were shown a bunch of different images of women and um, of various sizes and appearances and ages, and they were each asked, who is the most attractive? And the overwhelming majority of participants pointed to the same people who adhered to unhealthy and unrealistic ideas of beauty. And so the, the question becomes, um, it, you know, it's like uh, one of the quotes we have in here is about how the smoking. 
and about how, you know, if, if, or not smoking about, um, about how that's related to being skinny. And, you know, if, if smoking a cigarette, uh, and being skinny is really valued socially, but you're also getting cancer, um, you know, navigating that and bringing that into consciousness is, is a pretty important thing to do. And that's what Naomi uh, Wolf's work, work is all about. So the, the question is, how do we begin to look at the, um, the, the cultural influences, whether they're fairy tales or stories or advertisements, things you might've seen, you know, when you were a kid or something somebody said to you um, that might've impacted how you understand your own beauty and your own self. Um, how do you get to, um, you know, one of the things Susie talks about is how she reconnected with dance and realized that um, when she was in these dance classes where she would move her hips, she would feel all of this incredible energy inside of her. I don't want to take words from you, mm, Sus. But um, how do we begin to just bring into awareness, you know, you know, what we're doing and why, where did we get those stories and are they working for us? And do we, do we want to keep, you know, participating in them? Or is there something else that wants to be invited in? Is there maybe a, a new way of, of talking to myself when I look in the mirror? Is there maybe a new way that I want to dress that's actually, you know, secretly deep, deep down, I, I, I want to wear this big crazy outfit or something. Um, you know, I, those are, these are just silly examples, but, um, how do you bring it into awareness? So you get choice because otherwise it's choiceless and we're just sort of operating on autopilot. Mm -hmm. The sense I got from what you guys wrote here is that beauty is creativity and that, Hmm. you know, tapping, you know, awakening your creative, you know, whether it's art for you, L or dance for Susie or whatever. But as we are creative, we are getting in touch with, you know, our own beauty, but certainly universal beauty. Well, um, this is Susie. Um, and I wanted to say that my favorite definition of beauty, which is one of the definitions in the dictionary, which is anything that pleasurably exalts your mind. Mm. And um, I think this idea, and I think it's interesting, the word combination of owning, who, why do you get to own beauty? Um, is that the, the, it's this idea of, like, I would never say that women own beauty. <laughs> or the feminine is what I was saying more than women. The feminine, yeah. But, but there is this, um, this thing that, that I think when you get to hear the voice inside is, is there's um, uh, ingest, you ingest something new. And um, the beauty is um, a way that, that we take in, um, I think, new things. And when, um, when you're discovering a new part of yourself or hearing a new quote or a poem or something like that, there's just this, ah, that feeling of, ah, that takes your breath away, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's an inspiration, right? I'm taking the breath in. I'm taking this in. And, um, and I think that's, that beauty is one of these things that's so hard to define because we have such a three like culture, right? You're, the women are absolutely supposed to be beautiful, drop dead gorgeous, mm-hmm. right? Unless, unless you're not drop, if you're not drop dead gorgeous, then you don't get as many, you know, uh, resources in, in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so women are raised with this terror 
that if I'm not beautiful, I'm not going to survive, which mm -hmm. is getting worse and worse and worse. And I know when I was growing up, the whole um, issue around eating disorders came up. And, um, and I know Naomi's Wolf's work is she talks about how the media perpetuated this disciplined, beautiful woman. And that was the only way that you were going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so all these women, you know, have been literally carving parts of themselves off and, and trying to make themselves these beautiful creatures, because that's the way we get, we get love, mm -hmm. right. And get adoration. But mm -hmm. beauty itself, actually, if you look at all that striving is not really that it's this moment of transformation. And mm -hmm. that I think has, how do you receive that? Mm -hmm. And that's really the question. And how do you receive that exquisite moment in yourself mm -hmm. when I'm standing in the center of myself, or as we say in the book, standing in the center of the labyrinth, mm -hmm. you know, how do I receive that part of me that I've been so longing to touch, but I've been so afraid yeah, I, I love what you said, that it's undisciplined, really. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and the, the beauty is undisciplined. <laughs> it's not disciplined. It's chaotic. And it comes, it does mm. come from creativity. But the beauty that, you know, Elle was just talking about that's been um, imposed on us is, is not something out of creativity. It's out of a very fine lines colored within the lines very it's somebody else's image it's the patriarchal image of what they think beauty should be but in the true sense in the in the world of plato <laughs> i would argue that that it is not that and that it is something more chaotic and alive and and is born from you know our ability to unleash ourselves and to give ourselves that space of creativity. That's like, right. I mean, I look at the artwork in the book and I just feel like Elle in your previous book being in that white room and, you know, throwing shit and color at the walls and seeing what happens. That's beauty can only come from that. It cannot come from what you say disciplined. I love that. The disciplined beauty versus, I mean, it's not even beauty, but, that, you know, beauty is not disciplined. That's well, and, uh, so ripe. What I, what I love about this idea of beauty, it, it, it also makes me think of the, the beauty that comes from compassion. Mm. And I think about, you know, one of the last stories in the book is um, the interaction between Susie and her dad. Mm -hmm. I mean, talk about an undisciplined beauty. Mm -hmm. Talk about this moment of transformation this um, Susie had done so much work on herself mm -hmm. that she did the hardest, most beautiful thing imaginable, mm -hmm. which was to rock the boat and to use her voice, which had been so silenced mm -hmm. and to really, really tell him the truth of what she felt. Mm -hmm. And she did it with complete compassion for herself. She loved herself so much that she was willing to do this hard thing. Mm -hmm. And she loved her dad so much that she was willing to put herself on the line mm -hmm. in order to potentially save their relationship. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is, I mean, that's, that's it. And there's this um, wonderful quote. I, I think it's, um, and, and Taro Ali, 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 he says, truth without compassion is cruelty. Mm -hmm. And this idea that um, bringing compassion first to ourselves and then to others and, and marrying that with this 
you know, enoughness, enough of this administration, enough of what we're doing to the planet, enough of this, this way that we're, you know, structuring our economic model, enough of all these people sleeping on the streets, you know, whatever it might be, how do we, how do we go in and use our voice, use our gifts, whatever is getting unleashed in you, which is unique for everyone, because there's just one you, Mm-hmm. what what does that world look like? I mean, that's our hope. That was our intention on creating this book. Susie often compares it to a, a bouquet of flowers that were, that each one of us, if you imagine everyone, you know, all of our ears right now together, you know, we each are a unique flower, which is why each of the Enneagram types gets, it's a flower in the book. Mm-hmm. And the the process of transformation is one of blooming. Mm-hmm. It's of, you know, releasing the, the tension of the, the little fixed bud and, and relaxing into essence, into, into who you are and why you're here. Mm-hmm. And the, the beauty of, of the, all of the uniqueness, right? The, the individuality and the mutuality. We're here together and we all have our unique gifts uh, to bring together. And, and when we do, it's going to be an amazing, amazing day for our planet. And we need it now. We need it yesterday mm-hmm. um which is why it's so amazing that you're doing what you're doing Chantal oh. yeah um you know I want to I want to come back I feel like we're coming full circle here with the whole feminist conversation and I think we've all three of us have been sort of dancing around this like how powerful is the feminine really right and I'd like to hear what you have to say about that because we've we've been talking about the feminine voice we've talking about beauty which is all just great but now let's switch to power and we want to we want to make change Um, this isn't just a a book about like you know getting to know ourselves there's a there's a real intention behind here so what is, what is your version of feminine power and how big is it? What a great question. <laughs> Susie, do you want to take this? <laughs> sure. Um, well, if it's as big as the feminine power in me that I feel I touch every once in a while, it's huge. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, that the power is not a power that we're used to. Mm-hmm. It's not a power that, that seeks to dominate a power that seeks to, you know, um, you know, rule the world or a power that seeks to, you know, be number one, despite everything. It's, it's a totally different power. And I, it's a power and I, for lack of a better word, it's a power of love. It's a power mm-hmm. of wanting the whole to thrive to have a place where people can bring out, you know, who they are and be in, you know, a chorus with everyone else mm-hmm. um, and how we can have a planet where species are not dying, but species are thriving. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, you know, I feel like nature um, is a great example of this kind of power. It's like this, this bursting, thriving, loving, um, grand sense of beauty. I know like if you look out into a, a, a beautiful view, it's the sense that nature has designed itself um, to be something that exalts our minds. Mm-hmm. 
And that kind of power, you know, the power that you feel when you, when you see someone else changing or then when you hear a certain piece of music, um, that, that moment of just joy that exceeds everything, mm-hmm. um, to me, is, is getting close to it. But I don't even know how to describe it. It seems also almost ineffable, but something we need very much. It's funny. I, um, when I started Emerging Women, I would say, you know, the rise of consciousness is the real big movement here. That more and more people are becoming awake to their own beingness and and they're becoming awake to the power of mindfulness. And so there's like a, a general evolutionary inevitability that our human consciousness will become more and more connected to the greater cosmos. I mean, I just tr- truly believe that. And I used to say that the, that the increase in the feminine or, or this like rise in women's leadership and that that was a vertical off of the increase the increased conscious awareness. Mm-hmm. I am no longer saying that. Mm. <laughs> I am saying that the biggest movement is the rise of the feminine and that consciousness is a vertical off of that. That's how strongly mm. I feel about it. Wow. Mm. I you love know, that. that. Nothing, everything that we see here, the pencil, the money, the buildings, the roads, all right, our sense of patriarchal power, all of that comes from the mother all of that comes from the feminine there is no money without the feminine you can't have it it comes from the earth it's all coming from one resource right and so so i i i've started out kind of like you know gently being apologetic in a weird way about oh the feminine it's all we're all going to come to the together in the end of course when we'll be one masculine and feminine come together it'll be a grand eclipse but right now in our period in time i think the meta is the increase in feminine and that the consciousness is a vertical there's a a quote we put in the book which seems appropriate here it's about the um the goddess devi and she is the um in india she's the creator of life and she represents the the fundamental reality of the universe and um, this quote says i permeate the earth and heaven all created entities with my greatness and dwell in them as eternal and infinite consciousness Mm. 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 So good. <laughs> That's so good. Oh, lady. So good. I just, I so appreciate you both. And I feel the, the longing in your hearts for a mm. new world. And I am right there with you. Oh. Mm. What a joy this is to connect with you. I, I've never met you and I just, it's really great. I love what you just said. It's mm. really, really, truly heartwarming. Well, thank you. It's, you know, it's, we're all saying the same thing in different ways. And mm. I'm going to take that Debbie quote and just tattoo it on my forehead uh, <laughs> because oh. it's, uh, it's that good. Um, that's saying a lot. This is that, the that, thing, that, you guys, you are poets. 
this is this is my my point about the the beauty is that this is a beautiful book. It's not a like you're breaking paradigms even even in just the medium, the the, the publishing, just the sheer publishing of it. It's a new book. It's a new kind of book, and um, there's so much substance in it, and uh, there's so much power, and there's so much beauty, and maybe all of those things are the same thing. <laughs> Well, thank you for thank your you time, and I hope we stay connected. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we will. We're on your team here, and um, have a wonderful day. And we wish you the best. And um, thank you so much for bringing this work into the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What a privilege.